0: You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right. So, this point in the letter, First Peter chapter. Uh, two verses eleven through seventeen, which is our text today. This is a very pivotal point in the letter. This is uh, everything that Paul, uh, that, sorry, that Peter is, has been talking about, been building up, talking about our identity, talking about who we are. And it's going to take a turn now on what we're supposed to do. And then as we get into chapter 2, towards the end of chapter 2, into chapter 3, it gets into the most controversial point in Peter where it starts talking about household, what's known as the household hold codes or the household rules. So... He builds all this stuff about like who we are as followers of God and then he turns the corner and goes because of that this is how you're to live and then let me give, you that, give that to you in direct application to where you're living right now in Asia Minor in the context you're living in right now. And it gets a bit controversial so we'll have to go through that stuff uh, slowly or fast. I don't know, we haven't decided yet but we're gonna go through that. Uh, um, but it, this is pivotal that we get this part here in chapter two. Um, so let me read this uh, to you guys and then um, I'll pray. And then we'll get into it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent uh, by them to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. That's our text, let me pray. God, today and together we submit ourselves under the the power and the authority of your word, God. And we ask that you would train us and teach us, enliven our hearts, open up our minds to receive your truth. Um, God, as I, I stand here in the city Uh, with this, uh, our church, this, um, this, that's not a crowd or an audience, Lord, but just your church, as it's here, God, we want to be shaped by this. We want to live uh, into the Christian story rightly, into your narrative rightly. We want a rightly ordered desire, rightly ordered loves, and a a right way to interact with our society in San Francisco. And so, God, would you make us humble as we approach this, and teachable as we approach this, and change us, Change our minds and our actions and our hearts, God. Uh, There's a lot at stake here, God. There's a lot at stake. When this many people gather in the middle of San Francisco, there's a lot at stake. And so, God, would you please give us your grace um, and go before me and use me. I need your help uh, as I communicate these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's a way that those outside of the church outside of uh, Christianity, have a way of looking at the church that I think the church is actually starting to believe. There's a way that those that are outside of Christianity, that are outside of the church, have a way of viewing the church as they look inside the church, have a way of viewing it that I think we've heard so much of it that we ourselves are starting to believe. It goes something like this. Evangelism is weird. Evangelism is creepy at best, and oppressive at worst, okay? Evangelism, we don't really do that We're not supposed to do that. Another way of thinking is Christians should not push their religion on people. Christians should not push their religion on people. Another one is keep your private faith out of public conversation. So this is the way that traditionally over the last maybe, I mean, since probably the time of this writing, especially in the last 100 years, that the, that the people outside the church have pressed in, especially in, the, in America, have pressed in on the church and, say, and said this, evangelism, evangelism is creepy, it's oppressive, Christians should put, should push, uh, their, shouldn't push their religion on people and keep your faith to yourself. This is what many in our world today are saying about the church. They're saying basically, shut up, church. And here's the deal. We are starting to believe the same things. We're starting to believe these same things. We believe evangelism is creepy. We're like, oh, that's just so weird. And we don't want to be too extremist. And we think, I don't want someone else telling me how to believe or behave, and why would I tell someone else what to believe, or that they should believe, or I don't want anyone interrupting my life with news. Why would I want to interrupt someone else's life with news? And I shouldn't push my religion on other people. I think some of the tragedy in the modern church is that we have removed ourselves from public conversation. We have as Christians, because we have began to believe that what happens in the church stays in the church. So in a sense, sense, we have come to believe all the same things that people have been saying about us for the last 100 years or so. So for the most part, we are starting to believe, for most, most of us, we're starting to believe these things, but as we're starting to believe these things, there's this disconnect in our souls. There's this deep, probably deep for a lot of us, a deep sense of sorrow that we might even be feeling maybe even right now because we know. I mean, we know. If you just read like the first two chapters in this book in the New Testament, you know that this fake Christianity is anything but private, anything but private, like we, 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 we think, part of us thinks ah, I should keep this faith to myself, I shouldn't tell people about it, I don't want to push it on anyone, and we start believing what everyone else is perceiving about us. But there's another part of it that goes, when I read this, this is anything but private. This is as public as it gets. This faith was as public as Jesus' crucifixion. It's open for everyone to see. It's public. But how do I do it without being creepy? How in the world do I have a public faith in this society? And a society that is telling the world to shut up. And a society that is telling the world, like, just keep your faith to yourself. How in the world are we, a lot of us in here, very um, educated people, we think logical people, some of us progressive thinking people, but believe in this, believe in the scriptures, believe and follow Jesus, how do we have a public faith? How do we interact? How do we engage in the world in a non-creepy way, a non-pushy way, a very loving way, an effective way, a public way? How do we have a public faith? And it seemed insurmountable at times in America to have a public faith. Because America has a problem with the church. We have one side that says America's problem with the church is that she's kicking out the church and religion from the public sector. And that's the problem with America today. They're kicking out prayer, they're kicking out the church from, from all these different secular places where once our nation was uh, religion provided a moral framework and that's eroding and that's the problem. But we have another side that says the problem that we have as a nation is that is, is we have the church side saying the problem that we have is that we have this uh, overwhelmingly, um, and this is probably the overwhelming opinion of our city, is that our nation is excessively religious. It's too religious. And we need to get all this stuff out. We need to get out of science. We need to get it out of politics. We need to get religion out. Uh, or, you know, as Christopher Hitchens said, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, that religion poisons everything. And we have that side as well. So we have these two sides where America looks like it's, it's, it's battling over this, the church in a public, in a public way. Ross Dothit, um, the columnist for the New York Times and the author of a book on religion, says this in his book on religion. He says, America's problem isn't too much religion or too little of it. It's bad religion. The slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. See, maybe the problem with religion in our city and even in our nation is not too much of it or too little of it, but a bad version of it. Maybe what people are asking that we not push on them is the bad version of Christianity. Maybe what people want kicked out of the private sector, what people want to kick out of the public sector are bad versions of Christianity. And if you know some of the the history of the spiritual history of San Francisco, you will find this to be true. It's bad religion. I don't think it's necessarily deliberate, like we woke up one day and decided to have a bad religion, I think we just forgot who we are. I think we forgot that asking Jesus into our hearts, which is not a thing, by the way, but asking Jesus into our lives changes the way we see this world and live into this world. And this is what Peter is concerned with doing. He's concerned with teaching us, his audience, in that first audience, in Asia Minor, how to live a public faith. How do you that are moving in all over Asia Minor and are being persecuted, how do you live out a public faith? And this was not in the context of conservative evangelicalism. Peter's first audience was an audience that lived into a context that was hostile to the Christian faith. So what we have before us in 1 Peter is a letter written to a group of people in the first century on how to live a public faith in a hostile environment. You have to get the context. Actually, I'm gonna spend a little bit of time in the context, more time in the context than I am in what we're gonna be talking about today, and I apologize for that, but you have to get the context or this will not make sense. Peter, what he does is he builds into us, this is who you are, so he spends most of chapter one and chapter two talking about this is who you are, and now he will change, and we just read, into this is how you are to live. This is how you are to live, and we have to pay attention. I don't want us to be guilty of bad religion. There's a a sense in which what we're doing here, I look around and I see um, all these faces every every week here and a a lot of you throughout the week. And meeting in the middle of this city, this great city, San Francisco. There's a part of me that thinks what Peter's audience was up against is what we're up against too. The stakes are really high. We don't want to mess this up. If the church is going to be scattered all over San Francisco, and the church has the privilege of getting into public schools to tutor, that just blows my mind, don't screw it up. We have before us a beautiful opportunity, and we can't mess it up. I know Peter talks about who we are and that we're secure in Christ and that we're to be holy and that we're a priesthood and that we're a temple as we talked about last week. But then he was on to now, don't mess it up. Like represent rightly. Live in a world in such a way that you do good and even if they say you're stupid and wicked, that you will shut them up by your deeds. Not your blogs. Your deeds. This is this is what Peter's after. I don't want you to talk about it. I don't want you necessarily to, th- to 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 pick it against it. Just live this way. Live this way that even if they do persecute you and they ultimately kill you, when the day when God visits everyone, they will go, "Oh crap, I messed up." They will see God and realize that you were actually living this life, and go, "They they were living that life before me the whole time, and I didn't know it." Live that way. The church is to live this way. And this is what Peter is after. Okay, I kind of got ahead of myself. I apologize. Let me back up. Let me back up to last week. Peter here, uh, before we get into our text this week, Peter wants to point out, once again, the whole purpose of the Christian existence. So let me give it to you in miniatures, in case you weren't here last week, or you just need everything summarized in like 20 seconds, like I do sometimes. So here it is. Here's the the point of the Christian existence. 1 Peter 2.9 that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That you and I may declare the praises of God who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. What Peter is saying is that there was a point in time where we did not see, we were, where we lived in darkness. We lived in spiritual darkness and many of us emotional darkness. And now we see the light, and because we see the light of Christ, we see everything. As C.S. Lewis has famously said, who was before an atheist, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. This is what Peter's talking about. You were in darkness, and you you didn't see anything, but now that you've come into the light of Christ, everything makes sense now. I mean, the the world makes sense, the way the world is ordered, and the way that God wants it, and where it's going, ultimately in the end. the new heavens and the new earth, it all makes sense, and I buy, and through Christ, through that light, I see everything else. Now, because we see everything, this life, our life here, becomes declarative. Our life becomes declarative through through. Every part of our lives, in every fiber of our being, we are to declare the praises of God. This was the point of the temple last week. We become many temples that proclaim the praises of God, where heaven meets earth. We talked about it being like a movie trailer, that we are communities uh, uh, that are a foretaste of coming attractions, that we are communities, community is like this is what it's going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth. One day where heaven really meets earth, one day ultimately we are that now. We're like a preview community. We are like a portal to get super sci-fi into that future community today. That's who we are. Okay, that's who we are, but how do we declare that? I mean, that sounds great when we're just hundreds of people gathering and singing really, really loud. But how do we declare this? How do we declare the praises of God in the grind of everyday life in a pagan society, in a society that is not all Christian, a society that doesn't believe like we believe, and a society that sometimes may be hostile to the things of God. This is the context of the first audience, that they were scattered, they were a persecuted minority. They didn't believe in Christianity because it would advance their career. These Christians in Asia Minor didn't go, I wanna follow Christ because it advances my career. They didn't want to follow Christ because it made them therapeutically feel better about their lives because it did exactly opposite of all that. They became Christians and a lot of them them lost their jobs. They became Christians and a lot of them were persecuted emotionally, physically, and everything in the middle. They believed in Christ not because it therapeutically made them feel better or because it gave them a greater social status. They believed in it because it was true, because Christianity is real. Because Jesus is real and the gospel that was preached to them saved them from the guilt and the real penalty of sin. Now if you think sin is a churchy word, about four weeks ago we defined it as the human propensity to F things up. We all have that. That's the, that's the, that's the sin, that's sin in modern language. That human propensity to mess everything up. And we have it inside of us and Jesus calms that. Jesus brings integration into our lives, wholeness to us. The gospel was preached to this first audience, and it saved them, and then it led them right into public persecution. Now, I know that this was written 2,000-something years ago, and that was then, but I want you to think about it today. Imagine today you became a follower of Jesus, and you entered into public scorn immediately. Imagine it. What if becoming a follower of Jesus changed your social status? What if because you were a Christian, you couldn't get people to fund your startup? Just think of it like that. Like, oh, we're we're a company and we're doing this. Like, well, we heard you were a Christian company. We're not a Christian company. We're just Christians in a company. No. We can't do that. We're not going to give money to people that whatever. Imagine. Imagine you couldn't get a job that you were qualified for. Imagine that when you went through two or three rounds of interviews, something came up where they found on your social network that you were associated with so-and-so who was associated with so-and-so that goes to that one church. Are you a Christian? Well, yeah, Well, sorry, we can't hire you. Imagine that if you were socially excluded from privilege and power because you were a follower of Jesus. If you were excluded from advancement, you could only do this as a Christian. You cannot go any higher, this is what you do. And it felt like a form of slavery to you. Imagine that. Okay. That is what is going on here. I know the context is like completely different, but you have to realize when you read this, that's what's going on there. These were like, these were Christians with a backbone here. These were Christians that, like, I'm a Christian and I can't get a job, and we're a persecuted minority, we're scattered all over. And we hear talks that Nero is gonna start a a statewide persecution of of this faith, but we believe in Jesus, and we're not going anywhere. How do we live? And Peter's like, this is how you live in that society. So when you keep reading in chapter two and chapter three, that's the lens that you have to read it through. And so what would you do at that point? This is what the first audience is faced with. Now you would do probably one of two things. If that was you, and you were faced, in, in a, if you came out as a public Christian, and you came out as a Christian, and you began to begin to, or you began to feel ostracized or persecuted in any way, you have two choices. And here they are. Here, here are options under hostility. The first option is we resist. Okay, the resistance. There are youth ministries called the resistance. Don't raise your hand if you were a part of a youth ministry called the resistance. Okay, we resist, right? We will resist it all. We will resist everything. Okay, this is one way. We fight. It's us against them. We resist the authority of the day. Who's the authority? The emperor. We resist you, emperor. Who who else? Your bosses, your masters. We resist you, masters. We resist everyone and everything. We are the resistance. Now that could have been the case. That happens. That has happened a lot throughout Christianity. Christianity becomes different and distinct because it's us against them. That's what we believe, it's us against them. And this is, that's, this is where we find an identity. We are not them, we are us. We are not like the world. So Christian identity becomes, well we are not them. That, that, well, who are you? I don't know who I am, but I know who I'm not. I'm not them. And this is what Christianity becomes. And when identity is formed primarily through negative process of rejection of the beliefs and the practices of other people, violence is unavoidable. Violence must happen. So you are resisting and this resistance becomes all out war. And this is what happens in culture wars all over the western world. Culture wars, it's the Christians against the liberals. And everything the liberals do, the Christians reject because us against them, we're not you. It's us, it's the Christians against the pro-choice. It's the Christians against the gay agenda. And it's us against them, and that's, that, and that's why we can't get healthy public discourse because someone has called it the resistance, and we are resisting you, and you will never be us, and we will never be you. That is so wrong. Completely wrong. This is not how Peter sets it up. He does not set it up as the resistance. Identity through who we're not and what we're against is a horrible way to find an identity. The second thing we can do, now I will say this happens a lot over the world. I don't think that happens so much in the city but that it is apparent, I mean we all know it. Another way, another way they could have, they and us could uh, deal with that situation I just read or thought about is we privatize. We keep quiet. We don't let anyone know we're a Christian so we can get the jobs, we can get the opportunities, we can get the friends, we can get the community. We privatize it, we can get the date with the guy who says he believes in God, in quotes. So he must be like a strong Christian, right? Like we just won't talk about it then. (laughs) Happens all, all the time. We privatize it. We privatize it so persecution stops, rejection stops, and we simply assimilate. And both of these options were a temptation to Peter's audience. Do we resist the emperor? Do we resist the people that are persecuting us? Or do we just privatize it? Do we keep it quiet? Do we not talk about it? Do we just say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I don't know what you're talking about. Do, what do we do? Both options are a temptation today. Though we are not under persecution, we do live in a pluralistic and secular society where there are places of incompatibility with the Christian life. So what do we do? So what does Peter exhort us to do? How do we live in this public faith? Okay, now to our text. I had a, sorry, that took a long time. This won't take that long, we'll just dive into this. First he says this, he frames it negatively. We are to abstain. Now, I know abstinence is such a a silly, cheesy word in our culture. Like, really, who does that? This is what Peter is calling us to do as followers of Jesus that live in the society we are to abstain. And abstinence is there. I'm not talking about simply about sexual abstinence. I'm not talking about that. Like, oh, my gosh, she's talking abstinence? Now, abstaining from sinful desires. And the reason why Peter says, I want you to abstain from sinful desires is because of what it does to the soul. This is very important. If we are shaped by what we love, we talked about this three weeks ago, if we are shaped by what we love and are already told to desire and love and crave spiritual milk, Peter is all about the things that shape us, desires, loves. He tells us to love God, to be holy, to love one another, and he says those loves that you have shape you and turn you into something. The more that you love God, you will become like God. The more your desires are shaped this way, desire pure and crave pure spiritual milk so you can grow up in your salvation. So we are to desire the good things of God. So we are to desire. But we also have desires in us that can destroy us. We also have desires that disorder us, that disintegrate the soul. There are desires that left unchecked, that if they are left unchecked and are not kept in check, will lead us to stupid Ways and dehumanizing ways of living, and Peter calls this a war. Peter says, "There's ways, there's desires that you have; these inward desires that you have that will shape you into someone that you hate, that will shape you into someone who dis, who is dis, who begins to begin, become disintegrated, that falls apart." Um, in his book Soul Keeping, John Ortberg. A pastor and writer who actually preaches down in in Menlo Park says this in his book. I read this over my my summer break, and this book was so good. It's called Soul Keeping, and he says this. He says, the apostle Peter says, there are sinful desires inside you, and they wage war against your soul. That's a scripture we just read. Your soul is what integrates, what connects, what binds together your will, then your mind, those thoughts, feelings, and desires going on all the time, and then your body with all of its appetites, habits, and behavior. Your soul integrates your will, your mind, and your body. God designed us so that our choices, our thoughts and desires, and our behavior would be in perfect harmony with each other and would be powered by an unbroken connection with God. In perfect harmony with him and with all his creation. That is a well-ordered soul. The soul is what connects those innermost parts together connects them with God and was made for harmony all the way through. Notice how the psalmist writes, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. In other words, it is my soul that connects all that is within me, and that cries out for integration, for wholeness, for oneness, for harmony. This can only happen when my soul, my whole life, is connected with God. Sorry. It's really warm. It's like hot yoga in here right now. So <laughs> I'm not a fan of hot yoga. Um, so. so what Peter is talking about here is that the, the disintegration of your entire soul happens when these evil desires war against them. You have these evil desires that want to disintegrate you. So when Peter is talking about holiness, he's really talking about wholeness. He wants you to be whole. He wants you to be integrated. He desires for us to be integrated people, whole people, holy people. Now, this, just, this isn't just for us though. And this is what I want you to get. This is the point of this part. I could talk a lot about the soul right now and how we need to be integrated and all that stuff, but I wanna talk about this. The importance of integration of our souls as Christians and what's at stake, what's at stake in the Christian faith. This isn't just for our benefit. Yes, having an integrated soul, being someone who's holistic, whose will and mind and body are connected, that we make prayers with our lips and our hearts and our bodies, that we are connected, mind, body, and soul to Christ is important. But Peter says the reason why it's important here one of the reasons is it doesn't just benefit us, it benefits the witness of God's church and declares the praises of God. What it does is when you are an integrated soul and you are integrated into the fabric of this church or in a church community, what happens is that it bears witness to who God is. It bears witness. Peter here is talking about a public faith over your heading in your scripture, in your Bible. It should say something like living a godly life in a pagan society. How do you live a godly life in a pagan society? Abstain from things that war against your soul. How would that have anything to do with how I live out there? If you are disintegrated, if you are living a life that is contrary to the way of Christ, your witness, the witness of the church, the witness of Christianity means nothing it's flattened, it's weak, it's not robust. People won't look at the community and say, I, I wanna be in that community, because they're practicing the way of love and justice and righteousness and peace and holiness. They're integrated. It's not some weak spirituality, they're integrated, they're doing it, they're really, really living life like that together. Peter's saying, for you, as we live in this society, what needs to happen is an integration of our own soul that we would fight sinful desires. And notice what Peter doesn't do. He doesn't say, fight the world. He doesn't pit, he doesn't ever pit in this book. You don't be the world. You know what he says? You be like Jesus. Peter, in his language, doesn't do that. Now, Paul does it a couple places, but Peter doesn't. Peter's book is how to live in a pagan society. He doesn't go, okay, you know what? You, you, you just don't be like the world. Like that's so, we don't even know what that, if I said that, what does that even mean? I mean, I was on my way here and I saw the line outside of Tartine. It's like, I will never wait for a, 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 like a morning bun. That's what, I, I'll never do that. That's like the world. Is that what that means? That's silly. No, that's stupid. But we don't, we don't know what it means then. If it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? Do I not be like the world the way it dates? Well, kind of, yes and no, but how do I do it then? It, the, the goal is not to be like, not to be, not be like the world. The goal is to be like Christ. Peter doesn't reject the world here. Peter says, live the way of Christ, and the world will probably reject you. That's what will happen. Live into the way of Christ. Live like Jesus Submit your lives one to another. Submit your lives for the sake of the gospel. Even if you are, a, and Peter does this, and he'll we'll talk about this next week, even if you're a slave, if you are a slave, submit your life, because Jesus did, and that's our model. This is so radical. I mean, this is so, like, we when I when I think of living a holy life, I don't think of living a holy life just for, my own prayer life or for my marriage, I start thinking of, I live a holy life for this church and it's witness in San Francisco. And that scares the, that scares me (laughs) a lot. Because what's at stake? And what makes me any better than you? Why do I have, why why for me do I go, I, I just can't, like, I know who I am, I know my day, I know what Christ has done, I know there's grace, I know there's forgiveness, but there's also this weight, this responsibility that I have that's daunting, that I need the Spirit of God to help me live into. Because a disintegrated soul is a bad witness. Disintegrated soul is not how you live a public life as a Christian, it's an integrated soul, a soul that's healthy. It's so when I go into the world, I'm introducing people to the real article. Do you see the importance of that? That that might, that might over the next few weeks thin this crowd out. And I get that. This is hard stuff to live into. This might thin your community groups out. Because we don't just do it so we feel better about ourselves, so we just don't rack with guilt all the time we sin. We do it because of the witness. Look at the next verse. Live such good lives, now he frames it positively. First it was negatively, abstain, now positively. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So not just resist, not just, not sorry, not resist, uh, abstain. Not just abstain from evil desires that war against your own soul. Not just do that, not just fight that off. They're not fighting the world, you're fighting the, the desires of the flesh. Not just fight that off, but now do good. Don't be known for like, I just don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this. But what do you do? I do nothing. I just say no to sin all the time. I'm like, well, that's, that's useless here. Useless. What do you do? I do good. I live my life out in such a way that. Even if they start to reject me, even if they have things to say about me, they will look foolish one day because they will realize that I was not after their whatever. I wasn't envious of their thing. I wasn't trying to take them out. I wasn't trying to pour out to them my like my religious thing. I wasn't doing any of that. I was serving them in love. I was serving, and I was sacrificing, and I was giving, and I was doing that. I was doing good. I heard a, a story this last week of when Christopher Hitchens who is a, who is a, a renowned uh, thinker and, and uh, actually a really renowned atheist, really, and um, wrote a, a, weekly co- uh, a monthly column in, in Vanity Fair where he oftentimes just poked at Christians and thought that religion's poison. And, and he had a friend named Francis Collins who is the head of the Human Genome Project, who is now the director of National uh, Institutes of Health, and they were friends, and Christopher Hitchens is a Christian. And um, when when Christopher Hitchens got diagnosed with esophageal cancer, Christians wrote into him at Vanity Fair and said, we hope you die. You're getting yours finally. God is judging you. You will burn in hell forever. And Francis Collins called him and said, I have access to some things, being the director of National Institutes of Health, and I wanna help you. I wanna help you fight this cancer. I want to turn you on to treatments that you might not know of, and I want to walk you through and hold your hand through this whole ordeal. And they had publicly debated, privately debated for years, but they were friends. And when Christopher Hitchens, right before he died, he wrote about Francis Collins. He said, Francis Collins is a Christian and a true humanitarian. Like, he's the genuine article. He's the real deal. Now, we don't agree on certain, we don't agree on God, we agree on a lot of things on science, but we don't agree where it came from. I don't agree with him, but he's a true humanitarian. Christopher Hitchcock could say nothing bad about Francis Collins. Nothing. And it reminded me of this, to do good and live such a good way that the people that might be vehemently against what you believe and the foundations of the truth that you build your entire life on, like, I actually have nothing to say against you. I don't agree with what you believe, I don't, but we're friends, and you are—you tr- truly cared about me. And he even said in Vanity Fair, I think he's praying for me, but he won't tell me he's praying for me. <laughs> but I think he is. That we would do this, that we would live our lives in such a way that we pursue, like Francis Collins, the sciences, medicine, law, order, everything. We just pursue it. We pursue technology, we pursue all of it, under Christ abstain from things that war against our own souls and live good lives out to where even if the worst thing happens they'd go I don't we don't even agree with that church but look at what they're doing. They're our friends. This is this is my hope. This is scary. But by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of Christ. I believe that we can have this sort of public faith and public witness in this city by God's grace. God, I pray that you would fill us right now with your spirit and give us the courage to live out, give us the courage right now to say, to resist and, and, and um, abstain from sinful desires that were against our soul. We know what they are right now. I think we know, if we're following you right now, we know those sinful desires that we would resist them that we would uh, abstain from them, that we, would, that we would cast them aside, that we would repent of them. And help us do good, God. Would you bless our Endeavor and Mission graduates? God, would you, would you allow us to be people of peace and hope and education, that we would do good at this, Lord? That we wouldn't just be warm bodies, but we would do good? Help us think about the problems in our city and how to solve them in good ways. Give us opportunities that we don't ever deserve. And may your grace lead us to them and through them. And if, Lord, this nation becomes, becomes increasingly hostile towards the Christian faith, I pray, I pray here in this city for the Christians here in this city that though they might not believe with us or in what we believe, they say those people are truly good people. In Christ's name and for your glory, amen.